Chapter twenty six of Domestic Manners of the Americans by Francis Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty six Quakers, Presbyterians, Itinerant Methodist Preacher, Market, Influence of Females in Society. I had never chanced among all my wanderings to enter a Quaker meeting house, and as I thought I could nowhere make my first visit better than at Philadelphia. I went under the protection of a Quaker lady to the principal orthodox meeting of the city. The building is large, but perfectly without ornament. The men and women are separated by a rail which divides it into two equal parts. The meeting was very full on both sides, and the atmosphere almost intolerably hot. As they glided in at their different doors, I spied many pretty faces peeping from the prim headgear of the females and as the broad-brimmed males sat down, the welcome Parnay supposes prepared for them in heaven recurred to me, Entre donc et garde ton chapeau. The little bonnets and the large hats were ranged in long rows, and their stillness was for a long time so unbroken that I could hardly persuade myself the figures they surmounted were alive. At length a grave square man arose, laid aside his ample beaver, and after another solemn interval of silence, he gave a deep groan, and as it were by the same effort uttered, Keep thy foot. Again he was silent for many minutes, and then he continued for more than an hour to put forth one word at a time, but at such an interval from each other that I found it quite impossible to follow his meaning, if indeed he had any. My Quaker friend told me she knew not who he was, and that she much regretted I had heard so poor a preacher. After he had concluded, a gentleman-like old man, a physician by profession, arose and delivered a few moral sentences in an agreeable manner. Soon after he had sat down, the whole congregation rose, I know not at what signal, and made their exit. It is a singular kind of worship, if worship it may be called, where all prayer is forbidden yet it appeared to me, in its decent quietness, infinitely preferable to what I had witnessed at the Presbyterian and Methodist meeting-houses. A great schism had lately taken place among the Quakers of Philadelphia, many objecting to the over-strict discipline of the Orthodox. Among the seceders there are again various shades of difference. I met many who called themselves Unitarian Quakers, others were Hicksites, and others again, though still wearing the Quaker habit, were said to be deists. We visited many churches and chapels in the city, but none that would elsewhere be called handsome, either internally or externally. I went one evening, not a Sunday, with a party of ladies, to see a Presbyterian minister inducted. The ceremony was woefully long and the charge to the young man awfully impossible to obey, at least if he were a man like unto other men. It was a matter of astonishment to me to observe the deep attention and the unwearied patience with which some hundreds of beautiful young girls, who were assembled there, not to mention the old ladies, listened to the whole of this tedious ceremony. Surely there is no country in the world where religion makes so large a part of the amusement and occupation of the ladies. Spain, in its most Catholic days, could not exceed it. Besides, in spite of the gloomy horrors of the Inquisition, gaiety and amusement were not there offered as a sacrifice by the young and lovely. The religious severity of Philadelphian manners is in nothing more conspicuous 
than in the number of chains thrown across the streets on a Sunday to prevent horses and carriages from passing. Surely the Jews could not exceed this country in their external observances. What the gentlemen of Philadelphia do with themselves on a Sunday I will not pretend to guess, but the prodigious majority of females in the churches is very remarkable. Although a large proportion of the population of this city are Quakers, the same extraordinary variety of faith exists here as everywhere else in the Union, and the priests have in some circles the same unbounded influence which has been mentioned elsewhere. One history reached me which gave a terrible picture of the effect this power may produce. It was related to me by my Mantua-maker, a young woman highly estimable as a wife and mother, and on whose veracity I perfectly rely. She told me that her father was a widower, and lived with his family of three daughters in Philadelphia. A short time before she married, an itinerant preacher came to the city, who contrived to obtain an intimate footing in many respectable families. Her father's was one of these, and his influence and authority were great with all the sisters, but particularly with the youngest. The young girl's feelings for him seemed to have been a curious mixture of spiritual awe and earthly affection. When she received a hint from her sisters that she ought not to give him too much encouragement till he spoke out, she showed as much holy resentment as if they had told her not to say her prayers too devoutly. At length the father remarked the sort of covert passion that gleamed through the eyes of his godly visitor, and he saw, too, the pallid anxious look which had settled on the young brow of his daughter. Either this, or some rumours he had heard abroad, or both together, led him to forbid this man his house. The three girls were present when he did so, and all uttered a deprecating, "'Oh, father!' But the old man added stoutly, "'If you show yourself here again, reverend sir, I will not only teach you the way out of my house, but out of the city also.' The preacher withdrew, and was never heard of in Philadelphia afterwards, but when a few months had passed, strange whispers began to creep through the circle which had received and honoured him, and in due course of time no less than seven unfortunate girls produced living proofs of the wisdom of my informant's worthy father. In defence of this dreadful story, I can only make the often-repeated quotation, I tell the tale as t'was told to me, but in all sincerity I must add that I have no doubt of its truth. I was particularly requested to visit the market of Philadelphia, at the hour when it presented the busiest scene. I did so, and thought few cities had anything to show better worth looking at. It is, indeed, the very perfection of a market, the beau ideal of a notable housewife, who would confide to no deputy the important office of caterer. The neatness, freshness, and entire absence of everything disagreeable to sight or smell must be witnessed to be believed. The stalls were spread with snow-white napkins. Flowers and fruit, if not quite of Paris or London perfection, yet bright, fresh, and fragrant, with excellent vegetables in the greatest variety and abundance, were all so delightfully exhibited that objects less pleasing were overlooked and forgotten. The dairy, the poultry-yard, the forest, the river, and the ocean, all contributed their spoil. In short, for the first time in my life, I thought a market a beautiful object. The prices of most articles were, as dearly as I could calculate between dollars and francs, about the same as at Paris, certainly much cheaper than in London, 
but much dearer than at Exeter. My letters of introduction brought me acquainted with several amiable and interesting people. There is something in the tone of manners at Philadelphia that I liked. It appeared to me that there was less affectation of ton there than elsewhere. There is a quietness, a composure in a Philadelphia drawing-room that is quite characteristic of a city founded by William Penn. The dress of the ladies, even those who are not Quakers, partakes of this. They are most elegantly neat, and there was a delicacy and good taste in the dress of the young ladies that might serve as a model to the whole union. There can hardly be a stronger contrast in the style of dress between any two cities than may be remarked between Baltimore and Philadelphia. Both are costly, but the former is distinguished by gaudy splendor, the latter by elegant simplicity. It is said that this city has many gentlemen distinguished by their scientific pursuits. I conversed with several well-informed and intelligent men, but there is a cold dryness of manner and an apparent want of interest in the subjects they discussed that to my mind robs conversation of all its charm. On one occasion I heard the character and situation of an illustrious officer discussed, who had served with renown under Napoleon, and whose high character might have obtained him a favour under the Bourbons, could he have abandoned the principles which led him to dislike their government. This distinguished man had retreated to America after the death of his master, and was endeavouring to establish a sort of polytechnic academy at New York. In speaking of him, I observed that his devotion to the cause of freedom must prove a strong recommendation in the United States. "'Not the least in the world, madam,' answered a gentleman who ranked deservedly high among the literati of the city. "'It might avail him much in England, perhaps, but here we are perfectly indifferent as to what people's principles may be.' This I believe to be exactly true, though I never before heard it avowed as a national feature. The want of warmth, of interest, of feeling upon all subjects which do not immediately touch their own concerns is universal, and has a most paralyzing effect upon conversation. All the enthusiasm of America is concentrated to the one point of her own emancipation and independence. On this point nothing can exceed the warmth of her feelings. She may, I think, be compared to a young bride, a sort of Mrs. Major Waddle, her independence is to her as a newly won bridegroom. For him alone she has eyes, ears, or heart. The honeymoon is not yet over. When it is, America will, perhaps, learn more coquetry, and know better how to faire l'aimable to other nations. I conceive that no place in the known world can furnish so striking a proof of the immense value of literary habits as the United States, not only in enlarging the mind, but what is of infinitely more importance in purifying the manners. During my abode in the country I not only never met a literary man who was a tobacco-chewer or a whisky-drinker, but I never met any who were not that had escaped these degrading habits. On the women the influence is, if possible, still more important. Unfortunately the instances are rare, but they are to be found. One admirable example occurs in the person of a young lady of Cincinnati surrounded by a society totally incapable of appreciating, or even of comprehending her, she holds a place among it as simply and unaffectedly as if of the same species. Young, beautiful, and gifted by nature, with a mind singularly acute and discriminating, she has happily found such opportunities of cultivation as might distinguish her in any country. 
It is, indeed, that best of all cultivation, which is only to be found in domestic habits of literature, and in the hourly education which the daughter of a man of letters receives, when she is made the companion and friend of her father. This young lady is the more admirable, as she contrives to unite all the multifarious duties which usually devolve upon American ladies with her intellectual pursuits. The companion and efficient assistant of her father's literary labours, the active aid in all the household cares of her mother, the tender nurse of a delicate infant sister, the skilful artificer of her own always elegant wardrobe, ever at leisure, and ever prepared to receive with the sweetest cheerfulness her numerous acquaintance, the most animated in conversation, the most indefatigable in occupation, it was impossible to know her and study her character without feeling that such women were the glory of all lands, and could the race be multiplied, would speedily become the reformers of all the grossness and ignorance that now degrade her own. Is it to be imagined that if fifty modifications of this charming young woman were to be met at a party, the men would dare to enter it reeking with whisky, their lips blackened with tobacco, and convinced to the very centre of their hearts and souls that women were made for no other purpose than to fabricate sweetmeats and gingerbread, construct shirts, darn stockings, and become mothers of possible presidents? Assuredly not. Should the women of America ever discover what their power might be, and compare it with what it is, much improvement might be hoped for. While at Philadelphia among the handsomest, the wealthiest, and the most distinguished of the land, their comparative influence in society, with that possessed in Europe by females holding the same station, occurred forcibly to my mind. Let me be permitted to describe the day of a Philadelphian lady of the first class, and the inference I would draw from it will be better understood. It may be said that the most important feature in a woman's history is her maternity. It is so, but the object of the present observation is the social, and not the domestic influence, of woman. This lady shall be the wife of a senator and a lawyer in the highest repute and practice. She has a very handsome house, with white marble steps and door-posts, and a delicate silver knocker and door-handle. She has very handsome drawing-rooms, very handsomely furnished. There is a sideboard in one of them, but it is very handsome, and has very handsome decanters and cut-glass water-jugs upon it. She has a very handsome carriage, and a very handsome free black coachman. She is always very handsomely dressed, and moreover she is very handsome herself. She rises, and her first hour is spent in the scrupulously nice arrangement of her dress. She descends to her parlour, neat, stiff, and silent. Her breakfast is brought in by her free black footman. She eats her fried ham and her salt fish, and drinks her coffee in silence, while her husband reads one newspaper, and puts another under his elbow. Then, perhaps, she washes the cups and saucers. Her carriage is ordered at eleven. Till that hour she is employed in the pastry-room, her snow-white apron protecting her mouse-coloured silk. Twenty minutes before her carriage should appear, she retires to her chamber, as she calls it, shakes and folds up her still snow-white apron, smooths her rich dress, and with nice care sets on her elegant bonnet and all the handsome etc., then walks downstairs just at the moment that her free black coachman announces to her free black footman that the carriage waits. 
She steps into it and gives the word, Drive to the Dorcas Society. Her footman stays at home to clean the knives, but her coachman can trust his horses while he opens the carriage door, and his lady, not being accustomed to a hand or an arm, gets out very safely without, though one of her own is occupied by a work-basket, and the other by a large roll of all those indescribable matters which ladies take as offerings to Dorcas societies. She enters the parlour appropriated for the meeting, and finds seven other ladies very like herself, and takes her place among them. She presents her contribution, which is accepted with a gentle circular smile, and her pairings of broadcloth, her ends of ribbon, her gilt paper, and her minikin pins are added to the pairings of broadcloth, the ends of ribbon, the gilt papers, and the minikin pins with which the table is already covered. She also produces from her basket three ready-made pincushions, four ink-wipers, seven paper matches, and a pasteboard watch-case. These are welcomed with acclamations, and the youngest lady present deposits them carefully on shelves amid a prodigious quantity of similar articles. She then produces her thimble, and asks for work. It is presented to her, and the eight ladies all stitch together for some hours. Their talk is of priests and of missions, of the profits of their last sale, of their hopes from the next, of the doubt whether your Mr. This or young Mr. That should receive the fruits of it to fit him out for Liberia, of the very ugly bonnet seen at church on Sabbath morning, of the very handsome preacher who performed on Sabbath afternoon, and of the very large collection made on Sabbath evening. This lasts till three, when the carriage again appears, and the lady and her basket return home. She mounts to her chamber, carefully sets aside her bonnet and its appurtenances, puts on her scalloped black silk apron, walks into the kitchen to see that all is right, then into the parlour, where, having cast a careful glance over the table prepared for dinner, she sits down, work in hand, to await her spouse. He comes, shakes hands with her, spits, and dines. The conversation is not much, and ten minutes suffices for the dinner. Fruit and toddy, the newspaper, and the work-bag succeed. In the evening the gentleman, being a savant, goes to the Worcester Society, and afterwards plays a snug rubber at a neighbour's. The lady receives at tea a young missionary, and three members of the Dorcas Society, and so ends her day. For some reason or other, which English people are not very likely to understand, a great number of young married persons bored by the year, instead of going to housekeeping, as they call having an establishment of their own. Of course this statement does not include persons of large fortune, but it does include very many whose rank in society would make such a mode of life quite impossible with us. I can hardly imagine a contrivance more effectual for ensuring the insignificance of a woman than marrying her at seventeen and placing her in a boarding-house. Nor can I easily imagine a life of more uniform dullness for the lady herself, but this certainly is a matter of taste. I have heard many ladies declare that it is just quite the perfection of comfort to have nothing to fix for oneself. Yet despite these assurances, I always experienced a feeling which hovered between pity and contempt when I contemplated their mode of existence. How would a newly married Englishwoman endure it, her head and her heart full of the one dear scheme, well-ordered home, his dear delight to make? 
She must rise exactly in time to reach the boarding-table at the hour appointed for breakfast, or she will get a stiff bow from the Lady President, cold coffee, and no egg. I have been sometimes greatly amused upon these occasions by watching a little scene in which the by-play had much more meaning than the words uttered. The fasting, but tardy lady, looks round the table, and having ascertained that there was no egg left, says distinctly, I will take an egg if you please. But as this is addressed to no one in particular, no one in particular answers it, unless it happened that her husband is at table before her, and then he says, there are no eggs, my dear. Whereupon the lady president evidently cannot hear, and the greedy culprit who has swallowed two eggs, for there are always as many eggs as noses, looks pretty considerably afraid of being found out. The breakfast proceeds in sombre silence, save that sometimes a parrot, and sometimes a canary bird, ventures to utter a timid note. When it is finished, the gentlemen hurry to their occupation, and the quiet ladies mount the stairs, some to the first, some to the second, and some to the third stories, in an inverse proportion to the number of dollars paid, and ensconce themselves in their respective chambers. As to what they do there, it is not very easy to say, but I believe they clear starch a little, and iron a little, and sit in a rocking-chair, and sew a great deal. I always observed that the ladies who boarded wore more elaborately worked collars and petticoats than any one else. The plough is hardly a more blessed instrument in America than the needle. How could they live without it? But time and the needle wear through the longest morning, and happily the American morning is not very long, even though they breakfast at eight. It is generally about two o'clock that the boarding gentlemen meet the boarding ladies at dinner. Little is spoken except a whisper between the married pairs. Sometimes a sulky bottle of wine flanks the plate of one or two individuals, but it adds nothing to the mirth of the meeting, and seldom more than one glass to the good cheer of the owners. It is not then, and it is not there, that the gentlemen of the Union drink. Soon, very soon, the silent meal is done, and then, if you mount the stairs after them, you will find from the doors of the more affectionate and indulgent wives a smell of cigars steam forth, which plainly indicates the felicity of the couple within. If the gentleman be a very polite husband, he will, as soon as he has done his smoking and drinking his toddy, offer his arm to his wife as far as the corner of the street, where his store or his office is situated, and there he will leave her to turn which way she likes. As this is the hour for being full-dressed, of course she turns the way she can be the most seen. Perhaps she pays a few visits, perhaps she goes to chapel, or perhaps she enters some store where her husband deals, and ventures to order a few notions, and then she goes home again. No, not home, I will not give that name to a boarding-house. But she re-enters the cold, heartless atmosphere in which she dwells, where hospitality can never enter, and where interest takes the management instead of affection. At tea they all meet again, and a little trickery is perceptible to a nice observer in the manner of partaking the pound-cake, etc. After this, those who are happy enough to have engagements hasten to keep them. Those who have not either mount again to the solitude of their chamber, or, what appeared to me much worse, remain in the common sitting-room, in a society cemented by no tie, endeared by no connection, which choice did not bring together, 
and which the slightest motive would break asunder. I remarked that the gentlemen were generally obliged to go out every evening on business, and I confess the arrangement does not surprise me. It is not thus that the women can obtain that influence in society which is allowed to them in Europe, and to which both sages and men of the world have agreed in ascribing such salutary effects. It is in vain that collegiate institutes are formed for young ladies, or that academic degrees are conferred upon them. It is after marriage, and when these young attempts upon all the sciences are forgotten, that the lamentable insignificance of the American woman appears, until this be remedied, I venture to prophesy that the tone of their drawing-rooms will not improve. Whilst I was at Philadelphia, a great deal of attention was excited by the situation of two criminals, who had been convicted of robbing the Baltimore mail, and were lying under sentence of death. The rare occurrence of capital punishment in America makes it always an event of great interest, and the approaching execution was repeatedly the subject of conversation at the boarding-table. One day a gentleman told us he had that morning been assured that one of the criminals had declared to the visiting clergyman that he was certain of being reprieved, and that nothing the clergyman could say to the contrary made any impression upon him. Day after day the same story was repeated, and commented upon a table, and it appeared that the report had been heard in so many quarters that not only was the statement received as true, but it began to be conjectured that the criminal had some ground for his hope. I learned from these daily conversations that one of the prisoners was an American, and the other an Irishman. And it was the former who was so strongly persuaded that he should not be hanged. Several of the gentlemen at table, in canvassing the subject, declared that if the one were hanged and the other spared, this hanging would be a murder, and not a legal execution. In discussing this point, it was stated that very nearly all the white men who had suffered death since the Declaration of Independence had been Irishmen. What truth there may be in this general statement, I have no means of ascertaining. All I know is that I heard it made. On this occasion, however, the Irishman was hanged, and the American was not. End of chapter 26